and welcome to Deep North. We're here today with staff writer Frank Walter Sands on his piece, A Diamond in the Rough, How Rasmus Rask Learned Icelandic and Inspired a Nation. A Diamond in the Rough, How Rasmus Rask Learned Icelandic and Inspired a Nation. There are three things that make Iceland distinct. Firstly, the relatively small land itself, full of glaciers, volcanoes, and its stark beauty. Secondly, the remarkable people who populate the land, and whose ancestors only survived countless catastrophes with a combination of tenacity, hope, and stubborn love of their petulant land. And finally, the peculiar Icelandic language, which is spoken by fewer than 350,000 people worldwide and is notoriously difficult to learn. This last aspect of Iceland, the Icelandic language, is perhaps one of the most difficult to appreciate for foreigners. Remarkably, however, any modern Icelandic speaker can readily understand 700-year-old manuscripts, such as any of the famous sagas from the Middle Ages, as far back as the 13th century. Since languages inevitably change over time, the fact that modern Icelanders can understand ancient text is exceptional. For English speakers, reading anything older than 16th, 17th century Shakespeare is very difficult, if not impossible. In the early 18th century, as a colony of Denmark, Iceland was heading in the same direction as most other colonized lands. Their language was gradually losing its luster and morphing into a hybrid of Danish and Icelandic. Higher education was mostly in Latin or Danish, and official documents from this time read as a jumble of three languages. Turning that development around was a massive effort, but much of the credit can be given to one man. Surprisingly, this man was not Icelandic. Coming to Iceland In the fall of 1813, a young, shy Danish man disembarked from a cargo sailing ship in Reykjavik Harbor. His name was Rasmus Christian Rask, 1787-1832. But he was no merchant, nor was he a tourist. Short in statue and modestly dressed, his face was thin and fine-featured long-nosed with round, clear eyes that burned with enthusiasm and intellect. Rask had been offered free passage to Iceland by appreciative Icelanders fascinated by the diminutive young Dane, who so loved their language. He had come to the remote Danish colony for a two-year stay to master the language and test a theory he had devised, that Icelandic was the closest thing to an ancestor of all the other Germanic languages. Finding the Roots In 1811, the Royal Danish Academy of Sciences and Letters announced that a prize would be awarded for the best essay on the topic of language history explaining the origins of Scandinavian languages. A few decades earlier, the British linguist William Jones realized that Sanskrit the sacred and ancient language of Hinduism from South Asia, was somehow but clearly related to various European languages, such as Latin, Greek, and even German. No one could explain how this could be, 
but the discovery marked the beginnings of a new field of the humanities, comparative linguistics. Historians, linguists, and other scholars the world over were eager to be the first to conduct research and explain it all. Where did languages come from? How do languages change over time? How are languages related? A Linguistic Wild West As a new field, there were no prescribed methods for study, and many of the prevailing theories were dubious at best. When Rask began studying linguistics in the early 19th century, exactly how languages were related and how they worked was mostly unknown. Before Rask, scholars and theologians seriously debated what language Adam and Eve had spoken. The concept of a common ancestral language between various European tongues, such as Russian and Welsh or Greek and Swedish, for instance, was not yet understood but would soon be confirmed. The Nordic languages that are part of what is known today as the North Germanic branch of Indo-European are closely related but were assumed to be derived from the nearly extinct Celtic languages and, for religious reasons more than logical ones, from Hebrew as well. A Polyglot's Legacy Although Rosk was not a professor, he was uniquely qualified for the task, a polyglot of unusual talent and the founder of a bold new method for studying languages. Rosk learned 25 languages and dialects and is thought to have studied as many as 55 over his short life. One of the most apparent signs of Rosk's early fascination with language was when he decided as a teenager to change the spelling of his name from the more German-sounding Rasch to Rask, reflecting the original name's pronunciation and making it look more Nordic. In a time when the first bilingual dictionaries were being published, Rask developed theoretical and practical methods for creating guides to languages. In this, he was far ahead of his time. Indeed, in the field of linguistics, his analytic methods are very much in use to this day. While studying at the Latin school, the 17-year-old Rask was awarded for his academic excellence and given a Danish copy of the 13th-century monumental manuscript Heimskringla, a collection of sagas about Swedish and Norwegian kings originally written in Old Norse by the Icelandic poet and historian Snorri Sturluson. 1179 to 1241. Already a linguist of impressive skill, he decided to turn his attention to learning Icelandic. However, none of the school's teachers knew Icelandic, and there was no dictionary of the language in existence, so Rusk had to devise his own method for learning the language. He began by comparing the Danish translation to the original Icelandic version, having been loaned Heimskringla in the original Icelandic, by one of his teachers. To simplify the enormous challenge of learning Icelandic on his own with only two books, Rask created a thorough and time-consuming system to categorize verbs, nouns, adjectives, and other parts of speech. The following year, Rask began to study independently, having long surpassed all his teachers. Starting with the ancient European languages, Rask studied Greek, Hebrew, and Latin. Then he learned German and French as part of the Latin school's curriculum. He went on to teach himself English, Anglo-Saxon, Swedish, Dutch, Frisian, Faroese, 
and even Greenlandic, but his native Danish was a puzzle to him, and Raska hoped to discover its place among Germanic languages one day. Rask's raw power as a linguist was undisputed. When Snorri's Edda, the Icelandic poetic manuscript from the 13th century, was translated into Danish and published in 1808, the young Rask received praise for his vital contribution. Around this time, he published a translation of the 10th century megalith Glavendrup, a rune stone which was originally part of a Viking-era gravesite. By basing his translation on Old Icelandic rather than Danish, he was able to make the jumble of runes clear for the first time. At the age of just 21, Rask was grudgingly recognized as the foremost Danish expert on ancient languages. His method was to survey as many languages as he could, surviving on grant money from the Danish government. He traveled throughout Europe, collecting texts and looking for commonalities between languages. When he had completed his travels in Europe, Rask went to India to continue his search for related languages. Sanskrit was of particular interest to him. Collecting and describing the languages he came across, he did not limit himself to Hindi, but quickly learned numerous languages of the subcontinent. Rask was the first to indicate that the Celtic languages, including Breton, Welsh, and Irish, belonged to the Indo-European family and state that Basque and the Finno-Ugric languages do not. He established the relationship of Old Norse to Gothic and of Lithuanian to Slavic languages, Greek and Latin. Rask's work while in Iceland revealed how Danish and Icelandic were essentially related. The comparative method was developed and used successfully in the 19th century to reconstruct a parent language, Proto-Indo-European, and has since been applied to the study of other language families. A Language in Ruins In 1813, Reykjavik was a foul-smelling port town of 500 inhabitants with 10 shops and 3 public buildings. A national church, a supreme court, and Iceland's only prison, which had been obliged to release all the prisoners that year because it could no longer afford to feed them. After centuries of famine, disease, and natural disasters, the entire island harbored fewer than 50,000 people. The fact that Reykjavik was Iceland's center of government and commerce meant that Danish culture greatly influenced the inhabitants. The local dialect was riddled with Danish phrases and vocabulary. Understandably for Rask, this was a shock and a huge disappointment. Rask managed to find lodging with a local merchant where he used his tiny room to work tirelessly on his essay to win the Royal Danish Academy's prize. A Grateful Nation Rask declared Icelandic one of the world's most magnificent languages because, quote, in it are preserved the oldest forms of words, having survived the centuries with so little outside influences, unquote. He received effusive thank-you notes and invitations by the dozen. Even a hundred-line poem in Icelandic was composed in Rask's honor, contrasting pleasingly to the cold shoulder treatment he was used to in Denmark. He published A Guide to Icelandic, or the Ancient Norse Language, in 1811, and in 1818 he followed with An Investigation of the Origin of the Old Norse, or Icelandic Language, which examined and compared the Scandinavian languages with Latin and Greek. 
Restoring National Dignity. Rask's A Guide to Icelandic or the Ancient Norse Language was exuberantly received by Icelanders, who saw Rask's work as a desperately needed recognition of their beloved and beleaguered mother tongue. The work was his most significant accomplishment yet, and was the first thorough analysis of the Icelandic language. His lifelong ambition was to identify and explore all the languages he could to create a comprehensive understanding of how languages are related. An Unforgettable Experience His frequent and extensive travels around and across the island, with all its contrasts and stark beauty, deeply moved him. At Geysir, he and his Icelandic guide were so beguiled by the steaming hot water shooting out of the ground that they stayed for hours in the rain to witness it. The locals met him with surprising hospitality everywhere he went, and he was often dining and staying overnight at the ubiquitous turf farmhouses in the absence of any inns or guesthouses. Despite his initial bad impression of the impoverished circumstances of Reykjavik, Rask's two-year stay was, in his own words, unforgettable. Most of the scholars and, and language aficionados Rask hoped to meet lived on remote farms. To carry out his study of Icelandic primarily and comparative linguistics secondarily, Rask was obliged to travel throughout Iceland mostly on horseback. But just getting a horse and supplies for his journeys was no simple task in a land that relied on an exchange economy rather than using Danish currency. It's not coincidental that the Icelandic word for money, fie, is the same as the word for sheep, a common item of valuation. To purchase a horse for a hundred rikisdalr, rather than banknotes, Rask had to find a load of lumber to trade. Mastering a Language Rask finished his thesis on the origins of the Icelandic language and began work on the first Icelandic-Danish dictionary. He even learned to play the traditional Icelandic stringed instrument, the langspil. During his travels, Rask would stay with farmers and would often teach languages, including Danish, English, Greek, and geography, to their children for a bit of income. Most Icelanders who encountered Rask found his mastery of the complex language impeccable. When asked to preach a sermon of his choosing to a small congregation, Several members so admired Rask's long speech that they asked him to become their reverend. Rask also enjoyed taking part in amateur theater performances, gaining notoriety for a number of his dramatic roles. Laying the Foundation for National Pride Rask suggested and enthusiastically promoted the founding of the Icelandic Literary Society, ILS, probably his greatest legacy. The ILS was responsible for publishing works in Icelandic and was based in Reykjavik and Copenhagen. During his extensive travels, many of the people he met to research Icelandic shared his fear that the language might easily be snuffed out and become extinct within a few generations. In 1816, the society was founded and it continues to operate to this day. To his great honor, Rask was appointed president of the society. In the early 19th century, when it wasn't being ignored entirely, the remote Danish colony of Iceland was seen as a desolate, disaster-prone island inhabited by barely literate, 
subsistence farmers dwelling in primitive turf houses. There were precious few signs of Iceland's glorious Commonwealth past, and many were ashamed of their island's relative backwardness. Rask's arrival in Iceland at this time was pivotal. His intellectual energy and youthful optimism was a welcome respite for those who crossed paths with him. While his passion for the Icelandic language and the literature of the medieval period deeply moved many others. Perhaps it was exactly what the country needed to wake from its long sleep and embrace the modern era with dignity. Without realizing it at the time, Rask introduced Icelanders to the age of Romanticism, the glorification of the past and a reappraisal of the natural world. Before anyone else could appreciate or love Iceland, the Icelanders themselves had to do so. Over time, and with Rask's encouragement, Icelanders began to take their language and the land itself more seriously. Intellectuals, such as Icelandic nationalist Jón Sigurdsson, 1811-1879, also based in Copenhagen, promoted a greater sense of national identity through their writings and speeches, which led a few decades later to the first stages of independence from the Danish crown. Well, thank you for that, Frank. Thank you. It was uh, fun to read. I imagine you had to do uh, a little bit of historical research yourself in writing us. Well, that's certainly an understatement. This was a considerable amount of time, I would say about three weeks of, of researching, uh, in order to understand the subject matter enough to be able to engage with it. But um, as somebody with a linguistics background and philology, I really enjoyed it because I'm ashamed to admit I, I hadn't really known much about Rasmus Rask before this, but I'd, of course, been aware of his name. And um, I'm so deeply impressed with his contribution. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that for a lot of students of history, his name is one of these things that you kind of encounter and you, you kind of know the role that he played, but he kind of just remains one of these shadowy 19th century intellectuals. You know, I mean, something that's really interesting to me also, uh, you know, is to maybe kind of consider him in parallel with, uh, I believe it's William Jones, uh, one of the, you know, also first comparative linguists. Um, he was, you, you know, I mean, really kind of one of the first people to figure out what we might call today, I suppose, the Indo-European hypothesis uh, by studying Sanskrit. But I guess one of the interesting things to me is how this history of linguistic discovery is also actually very tied up with colonialism as well. You know, I mean, there is this pattern of, um, you know, intellectuals kind of going out to the colonies to kind of uh, conduct their research. We might not think of Iceland as a colony so much anymore. And yet, you know, there is also kind of an interesting power dynamic there maybe. Um, yeah, like, was any of that kind of on your mind as you were writing this piece? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think it's um, it's very interesting to look at this topic in the context of uh, the Nordic countries particularly, because although there are plenty of colonies all over the world, there are a few that have distinct languages which are clearly related, at least to our modern sensibilities. But at the time, it was not understood that they were clearly related. For example, Danish 
was not thought to have any relationship to the other Scandinavian languages other than geographical proximity. It was considered at the time to be more closely related to German directly. And people thought of it as the, the, uh, the poor little brother of German. It wasn't until Rask that people began to appreciate uh, the historical dimensions of the Danish language. Well, and I mean, so much of this early 19th century linguistics, you know, also just directly had to do with budding ideas of what the nation is, what the folk is. And, you know, I mean, in a way, Rask is really one of the first to turn linguistics into a scientific study, because when the Danes, you know, maybe choose to ignore certain linguistic uh, similarities with other Scandinavian languages and instead align themselves with German, you know, I mean, in some sense, that is just obviously a political choice as well, Mm. right? I mean, it is to kind of aspire to be the kind of state maybe that a rising Germany was at the time. Mm. And, you know, I mean, like in a lot of ways, uh, this early 19th century linguistics, um, was just another branch of budding nationalism in a lot of ways. That's an excellent point. And I think you can see it all throughout Europe. Um, a very good example of this is the way uh, Germany became united from thousands, or if not hundreds, of uh, principalities and mini-states into a consolidated country that became first Prussia and then eventually took through Bismarck, all of um, what we now consider today to be uh, Germany. Before this time, Italy also was not a nation state, even though clearly it had a lot of linguistic similarities. And it was through this nationalism that the modern states of Italy, Germany, Denmark, France, and England were transformed. And we should be wary of that, though, because it was these same impulses that led to Uh, nationalism in the form of fascism and eventually the conflicts that led to World War I and II. Sure. And so very often when we kind of talk about the deep history of the Indo-European languages, um, it can can become a fraught conversation very quickly. Um, Very often also uh, we associate... uh, the oldest form of something with somehow being realer, more authentic, uh, you know, it's very easy to kind of begin politicizing these claims that, you know, quote, Icelandic is the original Germanic language or something like that. You know, so, I mean, maybe just for the sake of clarity, what do we mean when we say that Iceland is, you know, in some sense, the oldest Germanic language, right? Um, let's maybe just kind of sketch that out briefly. I think that's a, an excellent p- question, and it is difficult to address um, concisely. I think the best way to do it is to look at modern Icelandic as a reflection of Old Norse, um, one with very close but still uh, distant um, connections. For example, as it says in the article, it's not difficult for any high school student in Iceland to pick up uh, Njáll or, or any of the old sagas and readily understand the vast majority of it. 
However, to use the language as the people did back then would be very difficult. Um, there are not just grammatical, but a number of pronunciations which make uh, Old Norse practically a different language. It would be difficult for a person speaking Old Norse to be readily understood in modern Iceland. Mm. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, also just on a very basic level, uh, if we think of a family tree, right, uh, there is a very ancient ancestor that, you know, all of the North Germanic languages share. You know, we could call that Proto-Germanic. Uh, and, you know, so so obviously it's not the case that Icelandic is this original language, right, you know, to, to just be kind of clear about it. But Icelandic is a distant cousin of many of the Germanic languages that in a lot of ways has been the most conservative and in that way is the closest to this original Germanic language in that it has retained a lot of these features. Uh, But, you know, I mean, sometimes in popular discussion about these things, you know, you kind of see uh, loose descriptions of Icelandic as, you know, what the Vikings spoke or mm-hmm. something to that effect, which is obviously, um, yeah, there's, there are some liberties uh, taken in describing it that way. So one of the things that I always uh, just love is how systematic some of these changes uh, from Old Norse to Icelandic have been. Um, we were kind of talking earlier about uh, just some of these changes, you know, like from skip to ship, this SK to SH is you know, I mean, really remarkably systematic. I mean, that's one of the amazing things about uh, these early studies, right, is just how rule-bound a lot of these changes actually are. You know, I mean, it's really easy to kind of think of uh, language as this really chaotic thing that just kind of evolves through random chance throughout history. And, of course, there is that element to it. Um, And yet so much of this is almost miraculously regular very often, what are some of your kind of favorite little coincidences? Um, that I think the really interesting ones um, you can see in the Middle Ages, particularly with things referring to things that we know and understand well. Uh, one that I, I always was curious about when I was first learning Icelandic was the word for a bed in Icelandic is a room. Mm. And that sounds suspiciously like the English word room, which in fact it's closely related to. But in one case, we're talking about four walls with a ceiling on top and a floor underneath. And in the other, we're talking about probably a four panels of a bed with a mattress on the bottom. The idea is that you can see how closely related these two words are between these two different languages, even though there is, to some degree, um, a difference in, in meaning the original thought was there. It was a place that you went to sleep that was within walls. So that became a room. That's a simple one, but a more common one, I think you could probably say, if you listen to any of your Scottish friends, you'll hear the word barn being used. Mm. And uh, a barn is something which is born. In other words, it's a child. But in Icelandic, it's barth or birth in the plural, uh, aside from the pronunciation, you can see it's spelled the same way in the singular, and it has the same meaning. And this is just one of thousands of examples that we could easily forget if we did not look closer at it. Yeah, you know, I mean, 
there's just so many great examples of this. Um, one of the ones that is briefly mentioned in the piece, uh, but is also one of my favorites that I will uh, talk anybody's ear off who's willing to listen, uh, is the word fie, uh for money. Uh, and so there's a very, very old word, fehu, uh, in Proto-Indo-European for cattle. Uh, and, you know, in very early society, that was a marker of wealth is how much cattle you uh, you own. And uh, over time, this also just became a general term for money. In fact, the modern English word fee, like when you pay a fee to park your car, uh, you are exchanging cattle in some sense. Uh, and also uh, actually the word feudal, like in terms of like the the way of structuring society around property relations in that way is also related to this word, which I always just think is just amazing how, you know, I mean, just paying to park your car uh, somehow it takes you back 10,000 years into history. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a great example. It, it, it reminds me of um, one that I discovered somewhat recently, which is really obvious when you look at it. The word fielai, oh. which comes from the word fielag, which is meaning an association or a society or a grouping of some kind. Uh, an individual would be a fielai, and that is the same word as fellow in English. Yeah, yeah. So, when we talk about a fellowship, that's the same thing as a philae. And when we talk about a fellow, that's a philae. Yeah, I think also a very, an old Norse word that a lot of people will recognize. Uh, you know, I mean, of course, a lot of people who are maybe amateur historians will, of course, know that uh, there were a lot of old Norse settlements uh, in what is now the UK, uh, in the Danelaw. Uh, and so a lot of these uh, places still have uh, a lot of place names with B at the end. Uh, so like Grimsby, for instance. Uh, and so that kind of goes back to this word bua, uh, which was to live. I mean, it's also to generally make things, to dwell somewhere, to kind of build things. Um, and, you know, I mean, like there are just all these places throughout uh, the world today that, you know, have, uh, yeah, just th this, this uh, suffix B, uh, which is just I mean, really just the word for a settlement, right? Yeah, and uh, another one that's similar to that is uh, Witch, W-I-C-H. And uh. the town I grew up in in Vermont was called Norwich. And as a curious kid, I looked it up and realized that it was the northern uh, witch, like Nor is from north. And you can see it in Norfolk or Suffolk, um, like we Boston, where I grew up, is Suffolk County. And that means southern people, people yeah, of the south. Yeah. And uh, by the same token, um, the these words are everywhere in New England and throughout the Western civilization now, but very often are rooted in these uh, Proto-Germanic words. Yeah. yeah, and when you've studied this, it somehow seems so intuitive. And, you know, I think to kind of revisit Rask as a figure, you know, I mean, this was the equivalent of splitting the atom somehow for linguistics. Very I mean, so. like just this really, like a really revolutionary insight, actually. Um, and to actually kind of be the one making out these connections, tracing them, you know, without uh, an etymological dictionary, of course, uh, you know, he is really the first one to figure these things out, which I think really just makes him so fascinating. Um, and I mean, also just this period in Icelandic history when, you know, in my mind, uh, this period in the 19th century when all of these uh, European intellectuals are kind of 
falling in love with the idea of Iceland. You know, you also have, you know, just people like William Morris and stuff uh, going on their trips to Iceland. I kind of like to think of uh, Tolkien, some farmstead in Iceland, uh, you know, where there's just some new gentlemen passing through every weekend or something. Yeah. I, I, think, I think it's interesting because um, there is a, a book which is called um, Iceland, The Dire Years, and it is uh, a photo book of two British uh, tourists who came over a five-year period in the 1880s, primarily to fish, but often just to socialize and, and look at the island. And in so doing, they took 100 photographs and you can see how difficult life must have been at the time for the people. But um, you also get uh, an idea of how much fun it must have been to be an English gentleman, being able to <laughs> go from any farm you'd like and always be welcome and um, be offered food and, and company and so forth. So it must have been a lovely time. Certainly. So we've talked pretty broadly about some of his insights, but, you know, I mean, what was one of Rask's most important contributions? Um, he noticed the unexpected similarities that emerged through a systematic study of Icelandic in comparison to his mother tongue, Danish. He discovered, first of all, that basic vocabulary that appears to be similar between possibly related languages follows observable and predictable patterns in how it is spelt and pronounced. The consonants B, V, D, and G, and J in Danish are P, F, T, K, and G in Icelandic. So Danish sove is in Icelandic sofa, and bide, to bite, is bita in Icelandic. Similarly, Vowels such as A and uh, Y in Danish are A and Yo in Icelandic. Ben for bone and Lys for light in Danish are Bane and Lios in Icelandic. In this way, Rask could see to what degree and in how exactly languages are related. In the case of Icelandic and Danish, they are very clearly closely related. Yeah, and some people uh, might have heard, of course, of the famous uh, gatherers of fairy tales, but also linguists, uh, the Brothers Grimm. Uh, and in a lot of ways, these are also very similar to uh, what are known as Grimm's Laws, uh, which uh, kind of described some of the systematic ways in which sounds change between uh, the Romance languages and the Germanic languages. You know, I mean, that's just always one of the most fascinating things to me, uh, right, is just how... Yeah, how systematic it always is. Um, but, you know, it's maybe easy to think of Rask as this, you know, shadowy 19th century intellectual. We tend to maybe mythologize these people a little bit. Um, I'm kind of curious uh, in writing this piece and in your researches, uh, what kind of sense did you develop for what kind of a person Rask was? I mean, clearly you have to be maybe an adventurous spirit uh, to go to a place like Iceland in the early 19th century. Yeah, I think that's, that's an, uh, a very succinct uh, remark because this is a person who unfortunately died before the age of 40, but he was in not only massively influential, but he was... Uh, 
a true adventurer, almost in the sense of an Indiana Jones type person. He loved to pretend to be other people, uh, to play jokes. He liked to take part in theater and music, but he, his prodigious skill in language was um, uh, a, a very, very prominent part of his personality. In the unusually cold winter of 1814 to 1815, priest of the National Church, Artni Helgeson in Reykjavik, was not expecting anyone when there was a knock on the door. Rasmus Rask had disguised himself as a simple country boy delivering a letter to the Honorable Reverend. After inviting the young man to warm and dry himself, the two conversed for a time, and Artni would never have taken him for anything other than an Icelandic country boy before Rask revealed his true identity, much to the surprise and delight of the Reverend. Having perfected his accent and grammar, Rask was indistinguishable from native Icelanders. His amateur acting skills helped him pull off the stunt even more convincingly. His Icelandic friends remarked that he was as fluent as any of them, except that he enjoyed expressing himself with archaic words and expressions from ancient manuscripts. <laughs> certainly also, uh, just kind of speaking of his biography, uh, certainly does... Uh, a little bit of pressure on one to realize the kind of discoveries that he was making by the age of 21. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the fact that he could already speak 10 languages before he was 18. <laughs> so finally, maybe you can talk a little bit just about Rask's lasting impact on Icelandic history. One of the things that we need to keep in mind is that at the time when he was arriving in Iceland in the early 19th century, this was a difficult place to be. It was a difficult place to live, and many Icelanders were uh, suffering from low self-esteem culturally, linguistically, and as a result, Danish, English, German, other influences had been coming in and were making the Icelandic language uh, a kind of bastardized version of itself. Um it wasn't until Rask and his influence that people started to question the direction that the Icelandic language and Icelandic culture was moving in. After that, after Rask, people realized that this was, despite the poverty, despite the isolation, an incredibly rich uh, linguistic cultural heritage, and it needed to be actively defended and preserved. This is something that he was able to do through the foundation of the Literary Society in both Copenhagen and Reykjavik, but it was more importantly taken on by the average Icelander who suddenly realized, hey, it's okay to be Icelandic. It's not a bad thing. This was a difficult argument to make when Iceland was one of the poorest countries in Europe. But now, as one of the wealthiest and most successful liberal societies in the world, it's hard to argue that without Rask, Iceland might never have reached this level of success. Certainly. Well, thank you for the conversation today, Frank. Thank you. Deep North is the official podcast of Iceland Review, the oldest continuously running English language publication on Iceland, covering community, nature, and culture. If you enjoyed listening, please consider subscribing to Iceland Review at our website.